Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome, everyone, to the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. My name is Tim Whitaker, joined here with my co-hosts, Rob Michael and Jordan Renault. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Good evening. I am awfully sick, Tim. Okay, I got to tell our listeners the truth. We've been talking for over an hour and a half. We just recorded an interview, and now we're doing the intro, so that way it sounds like we're super official, but frankly, I'm too tired to even talk much longer, so let's just get this over with. Are we all in agreement? (laughs) Let's get this over with. (laughs) Perfect. No, I'm just kidding, kind of, but I will say we did just have an interview with Dr. Waltman, who is an Old Testament, Old Testament professor at Wheaton uh, University or Wheaton College, Correct. one of those. Um, and I, I think for me, it's safe to say he blew my mind in just a few minutes. Um, we talked with him about so many things, but the, this, the conversation was focused around how do we read this book called the Bible and what are some traps that maybe modern evangelical America, Christianity, uh, that's a lot of words, um, has fallen into with how we read this book. I think that's a pretty fair, you know, summarization, I, I think. Sure. Yeah. And if, if you haven't heard of Dr. Walton, he basically is an expert in the ancient Near East and Genesis. He's written commentaries for like the NIV study Bible. Um, he's written a ton of books, but his most popular series would probably be the Lost World series, Lost World of Genesis 1, of the Flood, of Adam and Eve, of the Torah, of Scripture. Um, so it, it, it wasn't like we were bringing on someone that doesn't know these things. This yeah. is an expert in the field. <laughs> this guy is an authority. He's probably the guy who trained Tim Mackey back in the day, who <laughs> I love. Um, Tim, if you're listening, come on the podcast. Um, anyway, um, I will say this to our listeners, please have an open mind and don't read that politically. I'm not saying have a liberal mind. I'm just saying (laughs) have an open mind um, because you're going to hear someone who frankly should not have even given us any time to interview him, but he did. um, And really is on the forefront of how we interpret this book called the Bible, what the Bible actually is, what is it saying to us? Um, It's, seriously there are there's so much good stuff in this interview um i i can't wait to re-listen to it myself because you can just tell that this guy like is so deep in scripture and what he's pulling out of it makes so much more sense once you're able to get rid of this enlightenment lens that we see the world through and put on this slightly other lens of you know, um, a Middle Eastern or a Jewish person (laughs) as best as we can in this culture. But uh, it was really fascinating. So I hope you guys enjoy the interview. And uh, we end up talking for a bit afterwards as well. So stick around for that, for some of our uh, in the moment uh, commentary and discussion. Anything else, guys? That's it. Cool. So without... I don't remember. 
All right. Then without further ado, everyone, I present to you our interview with Dr. Walton. All right. Well, Dr. Walton, uh, thank you for joining us on this, uh, this episode. I appreciate you taking the time out. I know you do a lot of great work and um, I appreciate you even responding to us to make the time. It, it really means a lot. I'm looking forward to a good conversation. So are we, because we were just talking actually off air, you know, I was saying that I've been pretty steeped in the Bible project and Tim Mackey and all that kind of work. And uh, he's been, for me, especially very helpful of just understanding scripture. And um, I would hope it would be a more um, um, true to the the source, so to speak, kind of way. And it's opened up a whole new world of how to understand this amazing book called the Bible. And uh, I know that you've done a lot of work on that. So I'm going to hand this over to Rob. And, uh, you know, before I do, why don't you, if you don't mind, just give us a, a brief background and maybe some of your work that you've done and kind of what you specialize in. Well, I'm a professor of Old Testament, so I specialize in trying to understand the Old Testament better. Uh, for me, that means that we need to use uh, proper methodology, uh, cultural backgrounds of the ancient Near East, the Old Testament, uh, I've done a lot with. Um, and so also I specialize a lot with Genesis because that's where lots of that material comes to roost. All right, yeah, that's, and um, as we were kind of discussing off the air, um, our first introduction to you was um, talks that you gave on interpreting Genesis and that's kind of where we where we thought you'd fit in great with our podcast here. We've been going through a series on interpretation of the scripture and how we can, how we're supposed to understand it. And um, your work goes into the ancient Near East and getting a better understanding of um, how the biblical text fits in with other stories that were written around the same time or before or after and kind of fitting it in and how it is both fits into, but then is also a polemic against um, some of those things. So it's a, it's great to have you on and we're looking forward to this discussion. Well, Dr. Wall, and I think I'll kick it off, uh, kick us off here to kind of get started. You know, one of the things that Rob has said that you've said, and I've heard you say is that the Bible is written for us, but not to us. Could you give us like a brief description as to what this means in term of, in terms of biblical understanding and, and interpretation when you say that? In one sense, it suggests a process to us. <clears throat> if it's not written to us, and it's not because it's not in our language, it's not against our culture, so it's not written to us. But if we're going to understand the ways in which it is for us, we better start by understanding what it meant to those to whom it was written. So it gives us a process. It gives us a starting point. It's not the ending point. But it's a starting point to say, well, we need to figure out what the text meant to them, uh, because the meaning is not going to change, but yet it will find new application generation by generation and audience by audience. So that's basically what it gives us, an awareness that we can't just start with us. We have to start with them. And yeah, we've definitely, we've had this discussion even amongst ourselves is, and I've had it with other people. A lot of people, you know, um, they'll come to the scripture and they'll have a particular view on what something is and they'll appeal. Well, the, the text clearly says and then relay an English translation of what the text says and give a this is what the text literally says. And I think what what you get at with the Bible is not written to us, um, but it is written for us is what does literal even mean? How, how do we interpret 
what that text means and not just to us, but to who it was written to and in that culture, in that context, and how did words change even over time in, in that regard? All right, in its strictest sense, you can't read the Bible literally unless you're reading in the original language because that's literal. Um, the minute you're reading a translation, you're reading someone's interpretation and you're reading through all of the filters of uh, the limitations of English. Uh, and so that becomes problematic. Uh, the idea of literal reading is that we want to read it for precisely what the original audience meant to convey to, I'm sorry, what the original author meant to convey to his original audience. Um, you can't read more literally than that, but there often requires that you understand the nature of the Hebrew words and that you understand the background in which it's written. Mm -hmm. Not to mention genre and etc. <laughs> Yeah, and one of the one of the um, areas of disagreement that you come up against when you present this cultural understanding or uh, more literal understanding that almost departs from what we have come to know in the Western Christianity as a traditionalist view, you know, especially thinking of uh, the Genesis account of creation, and many would hold to a twenty-four hour. That's what the text says, and so when you come into this. Um, what you have described in many of your books is um, a different interpretation than what most Christians would hold. That they they have this concept of well, the Bible is a timeless book, and um, so it, it it does speak through throughout all of the ages. And I I don't know why I have to go back into a mindset when didn't didn't God foreknow that in the 21st century. Rob and Jordan and Tim were going to read this this text in the English language, and and didn't he preserve the message? And I just wanted to know your thoughts on on how we can kind of navigate that that sensitive arena at times. Well, certainly the Bible's truths are timeless. Uh, that doesn't mean that the Bible itself is timeless. Sometimes its truth claims are embedded in the language and culture. And therefore, even though that truth is timeless, it's not always easy for us to get at that truth uh, without um, a little bit of research. So I think that's what we have to recognize, that it takes some work to read the Bible well. Um, hmm. You know, if we try to read it just sort of intuitively, open it up and let it wash over us, the problem is that that means we're reading it through what I call our own cultural river, our own cultural filter. And if we're reading it through our cultural filter, we're imposing something foreign on the text. And that's going to be a problem. That's going to create problems. So, yeah, it's, it means that it's a little bit hard work. But I think God's word is worth it. Mm -hmm. And we can't afford to mess it up just because we don't want to take the time to read it deeply. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed, um, I know you wrote about the cultural river in, um, in your Lost World series, especially the Lost World of the Flood, um, and how you, you use the example of giving directions in the city of Chicago or mm -hmm. in our example, the city of Philadelphia, if we were to give directions and 
you know, the Schuylkill Expressway and give landmarks and uh, give certain indicators that someone outside of the city of Philadelphia or the city of Chicago, in your case, they're not going to, they're not going to know these things. They're not going to know how long it's supposed to get or it's supposed to take to get from point A to point B. So when you give them that reference, they're totally lost and you make that application to scripture that that's certainly true on the Schuylkill Expressway. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in Philadelphia. I know these things. Yeah. So you know, then (laughs) you you know, the, the harshness of showing somebody the word Schuylkill and asking them. (laughs) Absolutely. You notice I got it exactly right. Yes. yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I feel like, though, and I love to hear your response to Dr. Walton, when we talk about the Bible, like how Rob's kind of describing it and some of the things that you've kind of said, um, I can feel people who grew up in a more fundamentalist tradition of the faith, myself included, almost get a little like, well, are you saying that the book that that the Bible was just written by men and that it wasn't like God inspired? And I think what people mean by that is, a lot of people who listen to this podcast, and again, I'm going to use myself as an example, grew up in a tradition that didn't really say it this way, but kind of made it seem like the Bible was beamed down from heaven right to earth in English. And so this is God, you know, God's word. It's him speaking through it. And, uh, you know, I've, I've met people who say, I was doing my devotions. I just turned to this page and God just spoke to me. And I've always wrestled with that because if it doesn't happen to me. I think, well, is God not speaking to me? So how, what do you say to this um, what I would say, this like uh, popular Christian culture of treating the Bible as if it was just, you know, pages from heaven right to us, no, very little uh, man influence, meaning people will say, well, of course men wrote it, but it was really God who almost kind of overtook them through the Holy Spirit and told them what to write down. What do you say to something like that? Well, of course, I accept the idea that the Holy Spirit is the inspiring force behind Scripture. Uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit can likewise prompt us and therefore lead us through Scripture. That's not the same thing as interpreting Scripture for us. That's our job to interpret Scripture. Uh, When I'm trying to interpret Scripture, um, I believe that my prayers and my research and my study and my deep thought Uh, will all combine together to help me to get to good results. But I can never appeal to the authority of the Holy Spirit as the validation of my interpretation. I can never say this is the right interpretation because God told me. I, I have no right to that appeal to authority. And so that becomes the problem. Um, I can certainly believe the Holy Spirit is helping me. But the best interpretation is the interpretation with the strongest evidence. Mm-hmm. And I have to present the evidence for my interpretation. Mm. Appeal to the Holy Spirit authority is insufficient because, as we know, throughout history, all sorts of Christians have claimed the Holy Spirit's validation for all sorts of horrible, yes. horrific things. Yes. Right. Hmm. And that that's that phrase is something I've been learning is is really shuts down conversation or healthy scholarly debate is the Holy Spirit told me, even if it's something in my life where, oh, the God told me that I need to move to North Carolina. Well, that, that just shuts down all 
input, any advice that I could get from spiritual leaders or mentors, because how can they argue with what God clearly and effectively told me? And see, there's the problem, because it's not verifiable, and it's not falsifiable, right. and therefore, it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. hmm. And you're right, it shuts down the conversation. Now, that may be one thing when you're talking about God leading you to this job or that school or this spouse, but it's a different thing when you're talking about biblical interpretation. Yeah. And again, uh, you, anybody says the Holy Spirit told me this is what the passage meant, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. hmm. While we're talking about um, sort of the... Uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit on scripture. Um, I had a question for you um, because you were talking about the, the way that the original authors were writing the Bible to an ancient audience. Um, so if we believe that the, those writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit in their writing, um, how do we kind of reconcile that balance between um, the way that it was written to an ancient audience? But I, I guess with, um, the Holy Spirit's influence, it's easy to see, to, to then jump to, um, you know, but it could have been written to us also. So is there sort of like a balance there between that? I know you were talking about like the truths in scripture being timeless. Um, but could you expound on that a little more maybe? Well, the balance is that it is for us. It's for mm -hmm. everybody. God revealed himself for the whole world to have access to. And um, we are fortunate enough to have access in our own language, which has its blessings, but likewise um, presents problems. Um, so again, if it were to us, it would be in our language and against our mm. culture, but it's not. And we all know that. And so in that sense, we can't make that claim that it's to us as well. Again, it's to someone else. We're reading, uh, we're reading over someone else's shoulder. It's their mail. We're reading over their shoulder, but um, still we believe that it has value for us. It has revelation for us. It has God's word for us. Hmm. But it's and, not always easy to get to it. Right. Tim, you had something? Well, I was going to hop. I wanted to get into Genesis one. I mean, that's, that was the big debate we had on our last podcast. And I mean, we have, you know, an expert in, in this kind of topic. I would love, you know, um, I, I, you're talking a lot about, like you said, you know, it's written um, uh, for us, but not to us and how, you know, um, having it in our modern language can is obviously a huge blessing, but can also present problems. And I think a very classic example is Genesis one. Um, I think it's, I mean, overall, I think in the modern American evangelical mind, um, that's a, a pretty devoted evangelical, they would hold to, uh, yeah, the Bible says that the world was created in a literal six days. And, and I, we get that from, from Genesis, from Genesis 1. Um, I know Rob doesn't hold to that view, but I would love to hear your thoughts on that, um, Dr. Walton, just kind of where you kind of land on Genesis 1. I'm under the impression that it's a poem of sorts, but of course, I'm definitely no expert. <laughs> I would love to get your perspective. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't go the poem route. 
Uh, we could talk about it as elevated pros, but I think that's a red herring. That, that just leads us into a discussion that's not going to get us somewhere. Likewise, even the question of literal days, I think, is a red herring. That's not the conversation we have to have, at least not first. Mm -hmm. The first conversation we have to have is what does it mean to create? You know, we have certain ideas in our minds when we think about creation. And most of our ideas end up being scientific, materialistic, uh, the, the world as science knows it. Mm. And so we think that the Bible is giving the equivalent of a scientific discussion granted in ancient world. Mm. But that assumes that creation is understood to be something that is primarily a material manufacturing act. And what I suggest is that that's not how they thought in the ancient world. Uh, for them, the most important value is order. And God is the one who brings order. And creation is bringing order into a non-ordered system and sustaining that order. And as order is, is established, as created, that uh, everything in it is given a function and a role and a purpose. And God's the one that makes it work. It's a difference between when you get a new job do you really spend all of your first month trying to figure out about the physical plant and who built it? Or do you try to figure out the corporate chart and who's in charge and who you answer to and who evaluates you? Right. You want to know how the company is ordered, and not just what it's housed in. And so I like to talk about the difference between building a house and making a home. Both are creative acts. And theoretically, you could tell a creation story that's a house story, or you could tell a creation story that's a home story. Both are valid, both are true, but both are different. And so we have to ask the question, what kind of story is Genesis telling? When they talk about creation, what aspect of creation is most important to them? So you can see it's not about the length of the days, and it's not about whether it's poetry or prose or history or, or whatever, mythology. It's about what are they, what is the kind of story they believe they're telling? Yeah. I, can, I, can I use an example that might help? Yes, please yeah, go. Okay. All you. So, so um, you, you get some tickets for a, for a show down in Philly. Okay. Um, um, uh, show you've been wanting to go to, but you couldn't afford it because you know you're just poor students and and you know you don't have any money. And uh, <laughs> but lo and behold, somebody gives you free tickets. You say, "Wow, that's great!" And so you head down into Philly and you get lost, and because there's one-way streets and there's construction and there's traffic, and then you can't find parking because you know how parking yep. is in the city. And and so you end up a mile away, and then it's raining, and you're walking through. Anyway, you walk in and you're 20 minutes late. <sighs> so frustrated. Mm. You sit down and you poke the guy next to you and you say, how did the play begin? And he says, well, the play was written in 1936. It was a Pulitzer <laughs> Prize candidate that year. And it was actually quite, no, 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 no. How did the play begin? Well, I'm, I'm just telling you that. You can't have a play unless somebody wrote the, the, the script. Yeah, yeah, I know. But how did the play begin? Okay, well, 
So the set was constructed by the Mars Construction Company. Uh, they had trouble <laughs> fitting this into the, uh, the this particular theater, but they're specialists at that. And that, no, 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 no. How'd the play begin? Mm. Well, you can't have the play without the set. Oh, yeah, I know, but that's not my question. I said, okay. The cast was chosen by the uh, cast, <laughs> right? Right. All of those are correct answers to how the play began. And in fact, at some level, they are essential. You can't have the play without the script, without the stage, without the characters. But that's not the question you're asking. You're asking, what's happened since the curtain opened? Now, that's a very specific kind of question, but it likewise is an answer to how did the play begin? And in fact, it's the one you want. So when we talk to the Israelites, so to speak, <laughs> um, about creation, they're wanting to know how the world began. Well, is that a script question? Is it a set question? Is it a cast question? Or is it an action question? And we have to get that from them. We can't just make it up ourselves based on the answer we would want. That makes sense. But when I read Genesis 1 in my mind, and like I read it through the lens of like physical things, you know, let there be light and there was light, let there be plants and there was plants. So to me on a very, of course, surface, you know, NIV version of reading Genesis, I read it as like, yeah, they're talking about material things. I don't see directly where they're talking about the immaterial or some kind of order. So how would you answer something like that? Well, first of all, um, thank you for disclosing your post-enlightenment frame of mind. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure is good. Okay. Second of all, exactly what is material about light? Um, you, you said you think of material things like light. Right. Um, okay, excuse me a minute. Um, I'm, I'm not getting that. Um, <laughs> Plants and animals, then we'll say. <laughs> okay. Fair point, fair point. Um, so you get to plants, and it doesn't say God created plants. It says, God says, let plants sprout, let them grow. Okay, that's, that's order, how the world mm -hmm. works. You know, even with fish and birds, it doesn't say God made them. Let them swarm, let them team. Huh. And he blessed them and said, let them multiply. This is God's order to the world. Now we say, but wait a second, how about day four? God made the great lights. That sounds pretty material to me. Right. Yes, it sounds material to us, but it did not sound material to them because they didn't know the sun, moon, and stars were material. Hmm. They don't know that they're rock or burning ball of gas or whatever. Hmm. They don't know that those are material objects. What do they think they are? Well, exactly what they call them. Lights. Hmm. And so God made the lights, and they function for signs, seasons, days, and years, as God orders our world by these lights of who knows what in the world they are, hmm. from an ancient world perspective. Right. So even with day four, they're not thinking, oh, God made these material objects. And from an, from an ancient Near East perspective, they, they don't think about things how we would think about things where we always want to know well where did it come from who made it what 
in their mindset, they were, I think, Dr. Heiser, yourself, and everyone else gets into this. Well, the ancient Near East was already supernaturally disposed. Sure. Everything around them was manufactured by the gods or by the god. Yeah. And so there, there, there wasn't a question of, well, who made this? They already know who made it. Their question, I think, more was, well, why was it made? And I think that's still the question that we struggle with in the 21st century. And I know in, in your books, you kind of get into that teleological argument of, can science answer the why? And there's many people that believe that they can, but we'll leave that to a different discussion. Right. Well, you, you've hit, hit it right on the head because in the ancient world, everybody, everybody, you know, pagan or or Israelite or whatever, everybody believed in divine agency in everything. And mm -hmm. so there was no such thing as natural. Huh. There was regular, there was ordinary, there was normal, but there wasn't natural hmm. because divine agency was always a piece of their understanding. Okay. So my mind is already blown in like four minutes of you talking. So that's amazing. And you've already put my whole, like you said, you pointed out that it doesn't say necessarily what I think it says. I just read that into it automatically. Then let me keep going then. Cause this is a great, a great um, question to ask. I think when it gets to Adam and Eve, are we still in the same vein then of this other way of thinking about how I've been brought up to think about it, which is that, you know, this like literal God created Adam and Eve, or is it pointing to something else then when we get to that part of the story? Well, again, in our, in our world, in our mind, in our cultural river, we are always thinking of material for human beings. That means biology, chemistry, things of that sort. Well, again, they're not thinking biology or chemistry. Um, so when the text, when we read in the text, God formed humanity, Ha'adam, God formed humanity. And then your translation in front of you, whatever it is, probably reads from the dust of the earth or of the dust of the earth. Uh, it depends whether you have ESV or NIV or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so take NIV, which has from, um, that makes us think chemical or biological ingredients because we're us well the first thing you have to know is that there's no preposition there in hebrew uh, and there is a there's a fairly hard break between god formed humanity and then dust of the ground that means it doesn't say god formed humanity from the dust of the ground or of the dust of the ground god formed humanity comma, dust of the ground. That's identity. That is not biology. Uh. That is not chemistry. That's who we are. And we know very well the biblical view that dust pertains to mortality. Uh. Do you enjoy doing this for a living and blowing people's minds all the time? <laughs> Yeah, you know, there's a lot of brain splatter. So. <laughs> I mean, it's, but you know, this is, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding like I don't appreciate how I grew up. So I, I have great people in my life who have taught me great things, but I hear you say that and I'm like, how did I never hear that before? I, I've grown up, I mean, I'm a homeschooler. That's how much I grew up in the Christian tradition in America. 
And then within maybe five minutes, Genesis one is so undone that I have to, I'm like, not only does it make more sense what you said, but how did I never see or hear this before? If it's, you know, to someone with any kind of higher knowledge, a very clear thing. That's because we all readily and intentionally read through our own cultural filter. Hmm. And that includes our traditions hmm. and our basic understanding of theology. We're comfortable this way, and we don't like to necessarily rock our own boats. So we read it through our own cultural river and convince ourselves that it's really the only way. And of course, I'm suggesting that our own cultural river is a foreign imposition on the text. Well, I feel like what happens, though, is when you start doing this and people start having it's obviously that that like fear kind of comes up in your own brain because you've been taught to that something that is a certain way might not be that exact way. Albeit, I think it's a much deeper way as you talk about it. Um, but then people tend to what they tend to do as a defense is say, well, if you're not reading these things as literal scientific accounts, you're just, I mean, you must be a liberal. I mean, you're just a liberal theologian who, you know, clearly you don't, you don't respect the Bible because, you know, A, B, C, and D. I've been told that myself just for saying like, yeah, maybe there's a different way to read this. Do you find that like it's hard to overcome some of those obstacles when you're discussing with people who hold these texts to a certain way that maybe they were never intended to be held to? Uh, certainly that's difficult. And again, all I can keep doing is saying, here's my evidence assess the evidence. Mm. And of course, some people say, well, that's great, but you're talking about Hebrew, which we don't know, thank you very much. You're talking about the ancient world, which we only get from you, <laughs> thank you very much. And they don't want to hear, you're welcome. Okay? <laughs> right. And so, right. so again, it, it becomes difficult because the evidence that actually demonstrates my case is evidence that they cannot assess. Mm. Uh, and obviously that that creates some tensions and some level of discomfort. I get that. Yeah, it's definitely discomforting. Um, but I think as you go through it, it is actually, it becomes very comforting to understand that, that this book is actually way deeper than you ever thought. Um, it offers, I think, better answers than I ever thought possible. As I've been, you know, listening to people like you and, you know, Tim Mackey, it's been very, very helpful to go, oh, I don't have to try and fit this circle into a square hole kind of thing anymore. I don't, I don't have to have my head buried in the sand and try and defend Genesis as a scientific account and sound like, you know, I'm just uneducated to most people and then play the defense card of, well, you know, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, you know, like just take these scriptures to kind of dodge in and out in order, in order to kind of defend myself. It's a much more way of saying, actually, you might be right, Mr. Science Man, because Genesis is, isn't really talking about that. It's actually pointing to something even deeper about the state of the human condition and, and how God made humans. So that's very helpful. And of course, I find it important to tell people, I'm not trying to defend some kind of scientific position. I don't care what it is. Uh, I'm not out to defend science. I'm out to try to uncover what the truth claims of the Bible are. Mm. And then once we feel like we get a handle on what the truth claims of the Bible are, we can ask, are those truth claims compatible with this science or that science or another science? Okay, that's all we want to know at that point. That doesn't prove the science is right. It only says, if that science is correct, then the Bible's not incompatible with that. 
Okay, so that's that's how I go about it. Um, you know, it doesn't tell you what science you ought to accept or anything of that sort. It's it's funny because you know our three hosts in in your book, The Lost World of Genesis One, you you kind of combat against young Earth creationists, old Earth creationists, and a more literary or poem um, style of the Genesis interpretation. And we actually have covered all three of those because I myself happen to land in the old earth camp. Jordan, I think, would um, land in the young earth camp. And Tim, as you've already discovered, lands in the uh, the poetry camp. <laughs> Not anymore, so, for the record. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I was going to say. We started in these camps, at least. Um, and, and so you, you kind of write against all of them as being either concordist or reductionist, but it, it's because we're trying to take our scientific understanding and make it fit with the, with the ancient text. But that's an incom incompatibility, I think, is what you're presenting. And of course, that, that all gets back to hermeneutics, as you well know. You know, how is it that we are supposed to read scripture? Do we have a right to expect it to talk to our science? That means expecting it to talk to our cultural river. Why do we think that the Bible should address our cultural river? And we might say, well, God knows our cultural river, um, and he does. But do we really believe that God gave the Israelites, against their knowledge and intention, hidden pieces of information for us to uncover and understand? I find that hermeneutically disturbing. First of all, it, it makes ourselves, our day and age and our culture, the center focus. Because after all, did he do that for medieval France? Did he do it for Byzantine Rome? Did he do it for Stone Age Borneo? Did he do it for everybody? I mean, why doesn't he bury stuff for everybody's culture? Why just ours? Mm -hmm. um, so I find it hermeneutically problematic, also because our accountability is to the authors that God chose to use. That wasn't our choice, that was his choice. And we have to be accountable to them. If we're going to say there's a truth there that they did not know, we have to ask the question, how do we get to it? Let's assume for a minute that there is truth buried in there that they didn't know. How do we get to it? And how do we validate for me to say, oh, I think there's this other truth there that the author didn't know. Now suddenly I'm not accountable to the author anymore. I'm only accountable to myself and my imagination. And I can claim, well, God put it there, trying to make myself accountable to God. But of course, anybody can say that God put anything there. There's mm -hmm. no controls. Accountability comes with a built-in necessity for controls. Because if we don't control ourselves, we've got no hermeneutic to speak of. So we did lose Dr. Walton here due to a technical error on his half, but he does come back, and so we continue our conversation until he returns. Oh, he's gone. Oh, he, dro he dropped out. He'll come so back. Hopefully he'll come I mean, but holy smokes. But I want to ask him about that, though, about the hidden truth thing, because my thought is that's what I was trying to say with like that all scripture is God breathed thing. That was I'm not saying it was the right example, but that was the point I was trying to make was like, was there some secret knowledge that Paul didn't know about what he was writing or was he just referring to like the Jewish scriptures? That was my point 
I was trying to make like three weeks ago, although I didn't make it nearly as good as that. But that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> sure you were. <laughs> I swear, I swear, I swear. Yeah, just claim it now. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it. That's that that's but no, that that was kind of, uh, again, maybe a bad example, but this idea of like secret, you know, encoder things that we're just left to discover two thousand years later, like, you know, in this in, in our post enlightened Western culture. Uh, anyway, yeah. I, I hope he comes back because wow, I mean that was just Woo! I would love to hear his thoughts on like this, you know. Told, told you it was worth. Well, it. I mean, what do you do with it then? I mean, like he, like he said, people can make whatever they want by just saying God told me, or I think God's saying this, and now we have three different, three thousand different denominations that go all over the place with different views on different things. Um, but I think back to Jordan's point from a few weeks ago, there most likely is just one truth, uh, or I would say that the authors were trying to convey a certain set of truths or a certain truth, depending on what they were writing. But I wonder how much we're outside of some of those truths to try and make it sound like however we want it to sound. Does that make sense? The Bible in particular. And a lot of the things that you were mentioning before, Tim, like the weird beliefs that were held for like this certain period of time, like you referenced that one about the great commission. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it makes so much sense if you look at it through that lens that, those people in that time were trying to do the exact same thing that we're trying to do now yes. and fit it into their culture Yes, and not looking at, I mean, and how could they, they had way less ability to look back at, you know, ancient uh, Hebrew culture than we do now. Um, yeah. Yes. That just makes those things make so much more sense. You're too. absolutely right. <laughs> you're like, Oh wait, you're right. If you're, if you're bound by time, which we are, we can't see, 500 years from now. So we don't know what they're going to look back on in our culture saying, how do they believe that right. whatever, I mean, whatever it is, you know, I'm sure we could pick a lot of them, but how do they believe that A, B, and C was, was like a good idea biblically? You know, I mean, we, we look back on slavery and we say that now, like who yeah. would ever justify? Well, clearly many people did because of the, right. that's how much the cultural influence influenced their own reading of scripture. Um, and I don't know if it's ever possible to fully break from the cultural reading to a degree because we're in it. But as much as we can be faithful to the author's original intent of scripture, I think, frankly, will rock us. I think it will shift us in a lot of ways, but we'll also come out also more um, concrete in, in knowing why we believe what, what we believe, even what we believe about the scripture. You know, I feel mm -hmm. much it's funny. I, I feel in on one sense. Like I, like I hold scripture a little bit looser than ever, but in another sense, like I hold it tighter than ever. It's a very mm -hmm. weird shift for me because I feel like, yes, I don't, I don't have to believe that Jonah was a literal guy getting swallowed by a literal whale. However, the meaning of Jonah, as I'm discovering, is way deeper than I ever thought and really is a reflection about me as a human. <laughs> so yeah. on one sense, it's looser. In another sense, it's much deeper and tighter. Yeah, that was a question that came up that if I feel like an opening to ask it, I, maybe I still will if he comes back. But just kind of like, why do you think that we or like modern evangelical culture like holds so strongly to these like interpretations of things? Uh -huh. like, why is it so important to you that Jonah is a literal story okay. or that I yeah. just listened to something on this? Um, okay. I think it was Tim Mackey actually talking on a podcast 
and they brought something like that up. And pretty much what Tim said was that there's this other scholar guy who's like one of these Dr. Walton types, just like Old uh-huh. Testament scholar of like everything amazing. Um, and he said that really, if you look at the beginning of the Reformation, you can trace when the historical accuracy of the Bible became more important than the literal accuracy of the Bible. So there was this shift with the Enlightenment of like, well, our version of fact is that this actually happened in this way. What Tim Mackey calls camcorder footage. Is this story saying this is the camcorder footage of what actually happened? That's like our big question. But like right. Dr. Wallen has said, like uh, citing back to Genesis 1, the the author in Genesis 1 is not trying to answer the camcorder footage. It's not saying this is how the physical earth came into being. I was there. Here's the camcorder footage. It's not trying to answer yeah. that. So well, I think that's that's definitely the beginning of the understanding. I'm thinking like one step further, even like what like it it matters so much to some people. Like you were kind of saying this before. Like people will think you're disrespecting the Bible because you're not holding to a certain interpretation. And I guess my think my thought is like, why is it such like a deep seated? I guess because like on some level they feel like you're not believing the Bible. Yes. Because you're not believing it the same way. That's right. That they are. It come well, it comes down to what we define as true. See, yeah. for us, if something is true, it means that it really happened a certain way. But I don't yeah. think the Bible is claiming to be that kind of truth. I think it's historical event. Exactly. Again, camcorder footage truth, right? Right. Historical event. Yeah. I'm not saying that that these events did not happen. I'm not saying that. Yeah. Right, right. Obviously. Here's a very simple example. The term 40, 40 years, 40 days, it's used throughout the Bible, uh, especially in the Old Testament. The Israelites Mm -hmm. wandered for 40 years. Noah, it rained for 40 days. That might mean a literal 40 years, or it could be a symbol of something else that still tells the truth about them wandering in the desert, but maybe it's not a numerical exact date. Does does it change the meaning of the Bible? Some would say yes, because they hold to the Bible being factually accurate, not not the deeper truth of like the human condition, so on and so forth. Hmm. Oh, hey. Hello, Hello, Dr. (laughs) Okay, um, I'm on my phone now. <laughs> okay. No worries. Uh, so uh, some for somehow Whedon's whole internet thing went. Oh down. no, <laughs> <laughs> we wow. broke your internet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't like the heresies that we were talking about, so they <laughs> shut the whole thing down. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so did I? Did you get everything that I said in that? Before I don't think we did. Down? I don't. I don't think so. So if you can kind of retrace a little bit. Um, boy, what was I talking about? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. well, what I can tell you, um, Dr. Wallen, is what as you were you know, in between here, we were talking a lot about what you kind of mentioned being um, what I said about people, if they don't, if they, if you say things like the story of Jonah might not be a literal guy being eaten by a whale or fish they might think that you're not treating the bible you know um truthful enough or you might not you might not hold it into the supernatural light that it should be held to so to speak um and we were talking about where where some of those ideas have come from like why is that a thing in our current evangelical culture where if you say something like that like maybe it wasn't a literal whatever uh all of a sudden you're in hot water well and that's because uh people think that um, if you have a narrative that's talking about a person, it must be a historical account 
uh, precise in every detail of exactly what happened. Yeah. And again, that doesn't take into account the possibilities that genre might say something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Tim Mackey calls it camcorder footage. Like we want the camcorder footage of what happened in that specific thing. And if, if it doesn't fit into that, all of a sudden it's a problem for us. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think in, in that line, what I know most people would appeal to, well, look at the New Testament writers. The Lord himself appeals to Jonah. So that validates it as a historical accurate account or the uh, the Apostle Paul, he writes about certain aspects of things, or or Peter writes about creation or the flood, and they they kind of make this appeal that the New Testament writers are validating our thinking. Um, and you've said that exactly right. Um, are the New Testament what are the New Testament authors validating? Right. I mean, are we really going to go to Jude, who talks about the Book of Enoch, <laughs> and say that Jude is validating the Book of Enoch? Mm -hmm. Well, the people in the first century, including Jesus, didn't include the book of Enoch in their canon. So exactly what are you thinking there? Uh, so those are kinds of things that, again, it just makes them more complicated mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. when, when do you see, I, this is kind of a tied in question, but I think one that would help to be answered. When do you think that the ancient Near East understanding of Genesis 1 was kind of lost to the masses? Um, obviously, there's always been people in scholarly research and areas that have held to this understanding and interpretation, but at, on a mass grand scale, when do you think that that interpretation and, and sensitivity to the, to the cultural context was uh, largely lost? Well, it was very gradual. Um, you know, the ancient Near East as a kind of integrated cultural river is begins to be lost when you hit the Persian period. Persians think very differently, not in everything, but in lots of things. And so you have 200 mm. years of the Persian Empire, and lots of the ancient Near Eastern thinking is lost in the shuffle. Then, of course, you get Alexander the Great and you get a transition from the Persian way of thinking to the Western Greek way of thinking. That also is a massive sea change in the cultural river. And by the time you're in the Hellenistic period, they're not necessarily remembering a whole lot about the ancient Near East. Now, I have to say, at the same time, some of those traditions are being uh, preserved. For instance, there's a Ptolemaic uh, a creation account uh, Egyptian, and it's all filled with order, uh, all of the order that God creates. That's a Ptolemaic account, although it probably has its roots in ancient Egypt, but it's been preserved even in Hellenistic times. Um, so there are two major sea changes, the Persians and then the Greeks, Hellenistic period. And by the time you get to the Greco-Roman period of the first century, again, things are in shift. So we have these major sea changes that take place with some frequency. And when you're two or three cultural rivers removed, a lot gets lost mm. in the shuffle. Yeah. Um, and, and so even, even the New Testament writers, would they have had this ancient Near East understanding even um, 
because the the Israelite tradition would have been passed down orally and then obviously through scriptures as well. So they would have had the 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 ancient scriptures and text. Would they have had this ancient Near East understandings or like inklings, in a... or would they have been closer to ours? Yeah. Now they would not have retained a lot of the ancient Near East, but they weren't looking for that either. Right. Okay. Uh, the New Testament authors were trying to appropriate and interpret things for their culture. They were looking at the for them part, not the to the ancient Near East. Right. So they weren't trying to recover something um, culturally, exegetically located. They were trying to appropriate the truth of God's word. And so they weren't trying to get back to that kind of idea. Although they thought they had some access to that, and I don't want to argue about that, but it just really wasn't mm -hmm. their focus. Yeah, because in, in their day, the, the Holy Spirit had given them the inspiration to write about the Lord Jesus and what was his impact in their culture. Yes, obviously he was foretold and, and they pulled from the ancient scriptures to talk about this is the Messiah that was coming and the Messiah that was promised to the nation of Israel, but he is here in our culture and the Lord sent him in the fullness of time, which is our time. So why is he here? What's his mission? And how is this all applicable to our time and generation? Right. So it's the appropriation of the Christ event. Mm -hmm. Wow. You give us so much to chew on. It's <laughs> crazy. Um, um, I almost, I mean, where do you, listen, a lot of people obviously are not in academia. Um, a lot of us are just normal guys who just have normal jobs and lives, but we're fascinated by this stuff. How does someone especially I think in this day and age, we're in that information age where everything is accessible, which means everything, the good and the bad, the true and the not true. Um, I think that's the hardest thing in, in any realm of our, of our current life is to know what's true and what's not. How, where does someone like us who, who you know, we're not in that world, where, where do we start with like just better understanding uh, this book called the Bible that maybe I, some of us have to really unlearn some things that we were taught that really are, like you said, they're a little bit fearful, a little bit anxiety-inducing. How do we start that process? Well, one of the places to start is the uh, Cultural Background Study Bible. Oh. Um, I, I did the, the Old Testament. I'm the general editor of the Old Testament. Craig Keener is the general editor of the New Testament. And it's basically a Cultural River Study Bible. All the study notes are background notes. We don't do theology. We don't do application. You can get those in other study Bibles. Um, we do the uh, ancient ways of thinking, ancient literature, archaeology, geography, um, those history. Uh, those are the kinds of things that the notes are. Other study Bibles have a few notes on those things, but all of our notes are those things. So a place to start is the Cultural Background Study Bible. It's available in the NIV, the NKJV, and the NRSV. And so that'd be a good starting point. Um, if you want to understand more about kind of what the ancient world was like and how Israel was like the ancient world, uh, I did a book called The Ancient Near Eastern Thought and the Old Testament. And that talks about some of that backdrop where there are a lot of similarities. 
if you're interested more in the differences in the way that the Old Testament has moved beyond uh, the the ancient world in which they uh, existed, uh, I did an Old Testament theology for Christians, uh, which focuses more on the differences and the way that we can build theology from the Old Testament. Um, so these are all places that can give you this kind of information, very accessible, um, that gets you started on all this. It does seem that the more, again, as I've been learning myself, I used to think that the Old Testament was the Old Testament and the New Testament was for us, but it, it seems that really the New Testament is expounding on what we would call the Old Testament, and that really, in particular, Genesis, um, I'm under the impression at least chapters one through three, if not more, are very key to actually the whole Bible, and they all they are almost like 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 the decryptor, so to speak, uh, the the decoder. Absolutely, absolutely. The the New Testament. I mean, remember when when Jesus talks about Scripture, his Scripture is the Old Testament. When Paul says all Scripture is inspired. It's the Old Testament that he's talking about. And so those are things that we have to recognize. Again, lots of times we will not be able to penetrate the ancient culture, but we can start to learn enough and be aware enough that we can say, I can't just read my culture onto the text. Mm -hmm. A book that can help with that, uh, Randy Richards uh, did a book uh, called Misreading the Bible with Western Eyes. Um, and that, that brings out lots of these kinds of problems that happen when we, uh, when we fail to recognize our own culture being hmm. imposed. All right. So Tim made a face because <laughs> you, you hit on a, a, that precise so, verse. I feel so vindicated in that moment. Oh, I want to drop <laughs> the mic. That's how vindicated I felt. Explain so yourself. <laughs> we, we, had a dis, we had a discussion on what... And Tim wasn't as eloquent as explaining things as you are, Dr. For sure, Walton. for sure. <laughs> so he was arguing that Paul didn't know that he was speaking about his own writings or the writings of his contemporaries when he wrote that all scripture is inspired by God. Only going backwards to obviously the Old Testament scriptures that he would have access to and the things that were well known canonized at that time. And mm -hmm. how then could we say, well, the stuff that he was writing was also included in what he was writing without him knowing it? Or is that a stretch to apply his own words to his own writings? Well, I think it may be a stretch. Um, you know, we, we never have a list in Scripture for Old Testament or New Testament about what books are there mm -hmm. and when God told people which books should be in or out, and how God told people which books should be in or out, is a process which we have not near enough information about. And the fact is we do trust that God's Spirit was at work in helping the community of his people over time make those decisions well. Right. That, that's basically a faith statement. You know, canon is not great material for apologetics. Um, we, just, we just can't prove the things that we would love to be able to prove. Um, so it's the idea of having faith that God's Spirit has guided the process of choice. Uh, whether, And again, that, that process normally took place outside of the people who actually wrote Scripture. Mm -hmm. And so we don't 
know who did it and what that process looked like. We can fill in some of the pieces, but there's an awful lot yeah. missing. I will say the other side of that conversation, though, <laughs> is that I think we weren't directly arguing two points that were opposing each other because um, for me, I think more of my thinking was in the vein of the spiritual truth that we can uh, see in that passage that Paul wrote, that it's all beneficial. Um, and in that being something that is, is for us too, to understand about the Bible as a whole, but it's good. I think one thing that I've learned just in this conversation is kind of that separation of two or four. Um, and I think that was the difference in our argument, Tim, was that you were arguing that it wasn't written to us, but I was arguing that it was written for us. So we're not really arguing <laughs> two different things yeah. so much as, or, or two yeah. opposing things so much as we're arguing two different things. Yeah. And prob probably the least read of the six Lost World books, The Lost World of Scripture, um, we, my co-author Brent Sandy, uh, spent a good number of pages talking about 2 Timothy 3.16 and about how we should think about exactly what's being said there and what that means and how important that is for us. So I would direct you and your listeners to, uh, to that discussion. We'll be sure to have yeah, that, that in the one, show notes for sure. That is one that I haven't read yet, but <laughs> is on my reading list. I've, I basically started with the big ones, the Lost World, Genesis 1, the Flood, Adam and Eve. <laughs> Of course, the Lost World of the Torah just came out mm -hmm. a couple months ago. And, um, yeah. um, I, we're almost out of time here. Can I ask you uh, one more question, if you don't mind, before you go, Dr. Walton? I, I want to kind of zoom yeah. way out for a minute and and ask you a question around, like, our current um, American evangelical context. I think a lot of things you hit on are great. Um, and honestly, like, I wish that, you know, um, everyone was here listening to this conversation <laughs> who needed it. But I... I've, kind of grew up in a tradition I, I think i'm going to assume i think that this is a pretty common tradition for people in in christian circles these days uh that the bible was is almost kind of like the fourth part of the trinity to an extent where like it's held to such a level of supernatural reverence that you can't question certain presuppositions that you were told about and that the bible was very black and white on very clear it's very clear um in all different kinds of ways you know what do you what, what's your perspective on like on the current evangelical state on how they treat the bible because it seems like we have all these different denominations all these different ways to read it the word heretic is thrown around you know all the time depending on depending on, on what circle you're in what do you do with that as someone in your position who has this amazing knowledge of, of the scripture well you know i think that we have a lot of wrong mm, misguided mm -hmm. expectations of scripture based on a, a flawed understanding of what it is and how it works. And we have to be willing to think through that again and again and again, not just individually, but corporately as a community of God's people. Um, our culture affects how we read scripture and what we think we can get out of it and how we should get that. There's a book by Glenn Powell called Saving the Bible from Ourselves. And I think it's, uh, it powerfully identifies some of the current uh, problems in reading scripture and how we've created the problem for ourselves uh, because of the setting up of false expectations. Would you? Um, so, 
those are the kinds of things to me it's not enough to talk about an exegetically problematic passage uh we have to start with hermeneutics and we have to have hermeneutics based in authority and we have to try to understand how all of this works how our accountability works um, if we're not accountable to the biblical text then we're really not treating it with authority how does our accountability work and people haven't thought enough about those mm. things that's great would i i I'll point the finger at myself first and then we can generalize it to everybody else. But I, I think there's times where it's, it's a result of lazy Christianity, right? So we come to the scripture and we just want it to tell us do a or do B don't do C and don't do D. And if it doesn't give those initial descriptions, then we, we just keep moving on until we find them. And instead, what the Bible is presenting us is with truths, with um, core doctrines, with things that we can then take and apply to specific circumstances. But we have to really understand the truth and take the time to develop. This is the mindset of the Lord. This is the mindset of the apostles. This is the mindset that the ancient Near East writers were, were in, so that then we can correctly apply those truths and doctrines to our lives but that takes a whole lot more work than just coming to a book that has a list of do's and don'ts or a list of laws that that we should keep now we we tend to like rules even though we don't always like keeping mm. them uh, we certainly like how-to books um and you know we we'd like to treat the bible that way uh, we, christians often um, bring out the idea of, oh, well, the reformers said that the Bible was clear, that, and so therefore I should be able to understand anything that it says. Uh, but the reformers didn't believe that. No. The reformers believed that the basic core theology was clear. Mm -hmm. And if they believed that everything would be crystal clear to any child or any uneducated person, they wouldn't have written hundreds of volumes of commentaries and theology books. They clearly thought this was difficult material and that it needed to be explained. So we shouldn't get confused thinking that there's nothing that's clear about the Bible. The gospel is clear. Mm -hmm. The God we serve is clear. What he has done for us is clear. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that you can figure out who the sons of God and daughters of men are <laughs> at just an intuitive reading. <laughs> You're sure? I don't know. I read it once in the message paraphrase and it was clear as day. You know, so. I've published on it four times with a different opinion each time. There you go. Uh, Dr. Walton, listen, I, we want to respect your time. Um, I re really appreciate you coming on and letting us ask pretty uh, amateurish questions, to be frank. But this is what I think more and more people are getting curious about, um, even though we're not in that, in that world of academia. And having you come on to answer some of this stuff, it's given me so much, and hopefully our listeners as well, so much food for thought. And just, wow, really just has, um, I don't think I'll ever look at Genesis 1 the same, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Well, I'm encouraged to think that it could be yes, helpful. It definitely was. I have, I have one last question that kind of weaves into everything that we've talked about. But um, so we, we talk about Genesis 1, we talk about Genesis 6, the flood, we talk about Jonah, uh, all of these ancient characters and stories. And there's uh, different ways to interpret them, whether it's an accurate historical or whatever, or hyperbolic exaggeration. How can we as readers in English pick up on some of the clues without, without going into the Hebrew text? Or is that something that we do have to 
rely on um, a bit more of study and look at people that know original languages? Is there any clues for English readers or is that an area that we just have to appeal to more, more studied personnel? Well, it's not always clear cut. Um, you know, it's still, uh, no matter how much somebody knows about Jonah and the background of Jonah, it's just not clear cut exactly what kind of genre we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. But so you have to consider possibilities. Uh, with the flood, when we said that that universalistic language is is hyperbole, is rhetoric, well, the way we demonstrated that was to show that that same kind of universal language is clearly used as hyperbolic rhetoric in other places. Right. Once you demonstrate that it can be used that way, then someone can't make the argument that since it says universal, that must mean universal. So it's how an argument is formed, what the possibilities are, mm -hmm. and what you can demonstrate from scripture. Um, so, but again, even very educated, informed people are going to have differences of opinion mm. on some of that. So I, I think the, the takeaway then is to always be open to a better, more evidenced understanding of the scriptures because even in the last 50 years we've made great advances in scholarly research and i know you're one of the components of that dr michael heiser there's so many people that are doing these um great research tasks and we have to be open to a better more scholarly and more historical interpretation of scripture than we even currently hold and some people don't like to hear that they may need some help. <laughs> they feel like they should be able to do it all by themselves. Mm -hmm. Just me and my Bible in my little prayer corner, and they should be able to do it all by themselves without depending on everyone else. So, of course, I've got a verse for them. And that's <laughs> 1 Corinthians 12, 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Mm. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And people in the church cannot say to scholars, I don't need you because scholarship is also part of a spiritual mm. gift. And we have to learn to accept that and be willing to depend on what God has given other people to do in the church. Amen. Yeah, that's that. great. <laughs> great stuff. Well, thank you for coming on. We, we uh, Again, I'll say it again. We just really appreciate you taking time to, to meet with us and to let us ask you some questions. And uh, we'll make sure to put uh, links to your books and stuff and uh, you know all that on, on our, in our show notes so people can find you. Okay, and by the way, one that just came out last week, Demons and Spirits in Biblical Theology. Oh, oh perfect. I, we will definitely be picking yes, that one up. I just, did, I just went through Tim Mackey's series on Heaven and Hell in uh, one of his podcasts. It was fascinating stuff, so I'll make sure I check it out. Thanks right. so much. We appreciate it. Right. Thanks, right. Dr. Wall. See ya. Have See a good ya. evening. Woo! <laughs> Are we done recording? No. Should I stop? No. That is vindication, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> vindication. Boom. Yeah. Kind of. Boom. <laughs> I mean, listen, it was a complete, it, it, all that was, was a blindfolded half court shot that went in, <laughs> that went in. All right. Let's be clear. It's not like I had any authority to say what I said. It was intuition that just happened to be right. right. But again, um, the Holy Spirit told you, buddy. Obviously, I'm way off in Genesis. I said poem, and he almost laughed in my face like a little child. So, so when I was <laughs> reading um, the Lost World of Genesis one, it's funny he goes through all three of them, 
and disproves them scientific or like so from the, i was just like oh so that's funny what, that's me that's jordan what that's that tim. means <laughs> is that rob knew that was coming tim <laughs> and he yeah, he exactly. let you walk right into it <laughs> he let me walk into it uh but yes, dude, honestly, i certainly did the guys like dude, we have to get more of those guys on our podcast because holy smokes i mean literally what in four minutes he totally shifted how i viewed genesis one because he's totally right the language that i thought was there of of god creating out of out of the physical world he's like no that's not what it says but again we're just conditioned to read that Mm -hmm. based on our cultural scientific method enlightenment context I mean, wow, what a shift. And I do have to say, Rob, that though I I have said to you guys before that I generally hold to a six-day young earth viewpoint of it, I feel like I've also said at the same time that the only reason necessarily that I do is because I haven't seen the scientific evidence against it. And what he was talking about isn't even so much about the scientific evidence. And we didn't even really right. get into that. Like, is there even a benefit for a Christian to be like that concerned with the scientific origins of our world? Um, yeah. So I feel like for me, I, I definitely agreed with everything he was saying. I just feel like it's two different conversations. <laughs> that, well, that, that's yeah. exactly his point. Right. He's like, yeah, yeah you can start that conversation, but Genesis one isn't referring to that. Like it could be young earth, yeah. but it's not coming from Genesis. It's also not old earth from Genesis Right, either. And that's why I asked the question to you, like, exactly. even if you are going to say it's poem or it's uh, this specific genre, like that doesn't disprove anything scientifically <laughs> because that's not that's what it's totally talking about. <laughs> you're right. You're right. And I think my point, and I think what he would say is that, none of us can really go to Genesis 1 to prove our scientific mm-hmm. view because Genesis 1 isn't trying to make that claim of, oh, like this is, the, you know, to go back to his play analogy. Yeah, the, the, the theater was built in 1913. It's like, no, I'm not asking that, you know. I don't think that the author is asking that or is answering that question of how the physical universe came into order because, like you said, they don't have a framework for a naturalistic wor- world, which, again, for me is – I can't imagine yeah. that. All I know is this idea of supernatural and natural, but th- that was a totally, totally different framework. So then, um, when it was, I was just going to say. So then, the question is for us: What is God trying to communicate? What truths are is He communicating through Genesis one about the ordering of the earth, so, the ordering of creation? Yeah, it, it, and He goes through that wonderfully and the lost world of Genesis one, just setting it up as a functional, functional universe and how God ordered everything to function for a specific purpose and then creates mankind to then function as well. But um, aside from that, what, what I really liked and it, it talked a lot about to me because so I grew up with a young earth understanding 24 literal days old young young Mm -hmm. earth um all of that i got to college and that's kind of where i saw the scientific evidence for an old earth with a young earth understanding for the scripture i was like but i still believe this is the word of god how can i make these two things work because i don't think that they should be opposed and i fell into hugh ross and the old earth camp and I always had issues with how they were like, well, the Big Bang was taught first in the Bible. 
well, was it really? Because it didn't really come around until like the 17th century. So did God hide scientific proof in the Bible for three millennia or even longer mm-hmm. since uh, when Genesis was written? And so I always had th- that discrepancy there where is the Bible really teaching new scientific evidence as well? And what he, what he then describes in the book is we've always looked at God and creation as a pie. And whatever we can attribute to God, he gets that slice of the pie, and then science gets the rest of it. And his analogy in the book, which I really enjoyed, is we have to switch desserts. It's not a pie we're talking about. It's a layered cake. And science is the first layer of the cake which has nothing to do with the second layer of the cake. The second layer of the cake is God who takes on the teleological or giving it um, meaning um, or having a purpose. And so science can never come up to the second level of cake, which is God and what God has done and how he has used things. Science can do and observe and look at the universe and look at how things were created, but it, it, it is incapable of passing to the, to the next realm where that's where God sits and God can order all of these scientific events. God can create them. If God wanted to use evolution, he could do that. Or if God wanted to, you know, create the world in six literal days, 6,000 years ago, he could do that Thank too. <laughs> the Bible's not giving that. <laughs> Well, the Bible, yes. the Bible isn't, isn't giving the scientific evidence. It's saying God did it. He set it up to be functional and it's up to the scientific community to say, okay, let's discover how he did it. You know what it is? I think as I'm thinking about it, I, I'm understanding now when guys like Tim Mackey or Rob Bell in the past have said that the Bible is a deeply human book. I'm like, okay, I get it. What they're talking about is that the Bible is communicating like the state of humanity and what we've done and and like our tendencies as humans and what God has done in spite of our massive issues. And I think that makes it, when you think about it like that, the Bible really even more so comes alive because then you're looking for, okay, like there's obviously this human truth in all these stories about that really reflect on me being also a human and falling into some of these terrible, you know, uh, mindsets or mentalities or whatever it is instead of looking to the scripture to answer all of my scientific questions or my philosophical questions or my what if questions, the Bible is not claiming, if it it answers some, that's great, but it's never claiming or it has claimed to do that. It's a book about how God has worked through broken humanity and what we can learn from other humans that God has worked through. That's a very different claim than what a modern post-enlightened Western culture wants to get out of a book like that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause at, at that point, why have four gospel writers? Why not just have one person that told the 100% accurate story, every detail from beginning of ministry to exactly. End? Why was there four writers? Because God was using the human experience to describe four different aspects yes. of this person and get those mindsets and, and yeah, I think that speaks to exactly what yeah. you're saying. But don't bring Rob Bell into this. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! But honestly, did he say that I before mean, you went crazy? 
Uh, yeah, I think I actually I listened to an interview with him recently on another podcast. That was actually uh, it was actually really great. I mean, frankly, and he he says that he is still completely drawn to and committed to like the following of Jesus. And I get he's a little out there. I get he said <laughs> crazy stuff, but frankly, dude, like to a big degree, as I dive into my faith more and you know try to understand this book, the Bible, in a whole different way, I. Not saying I necessarily agree with what Rob Bell has done or said in the past, but I can at least understand where he's coming from. Because when you go down this path, it does expand the world a little bit. Not so much in the sense of uh, what we would think is, you know, um, other religions. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that I can't look to the Bible to give me concrete black and white answers to everything that I always think it should. I, I definitely think, like Dr. Walton said, you know, the, the gospel, Jesus, the redemption of people. I mean, that's clear as day, but there's way more nuance about what that means that I think I can still learn from scripture. So that's kind of where I'm, I'm trying to, frankly, I'm trying to not like have this anxiety over changing my view about the Bible, because I've almost had this like fear drilled into me that if I don't see it as this infallible, um, every word is perfect, you know, God took over the writers to a big, a big extent and has, has dropped in little secret truths for us in the modern century. You know, if you don't see it that way, you're just a big heretic and you're probably not even saved because <laughs> you're not reading the Bible. Right. And it's very hard to let go. And that's drilled into your head for 30 years, but I think I'm getting there. And frankly, I think it's actually, like I said earlier, guys, I'm in one sense, loosening my grip on the Bible in another sense, grabbing tighter than ever for it being uh, a, a, a very truthful book about people. Yeah. I think as you do that, though, you have to start like prayerfully and, um, you know, using evidence like Dr. Walton was talking about, like draw lines for yourself in that like I, I this is something that's a this is a line that's important and I'm not going to let walking down this road, you know, throw me over this line. And you, you get what I mean by that. And I, I yeah, think that's I, what I, I think do. that's what some people and maybe Rob Bell a little bit, in my opinion, at least <laughs> have sort of like gone down that road and just kept on running <laughs> and kind of just wherever it took them. Yeah, I think I have to wrestle with this tension of having lines and doing my best to let the Bible set those lines yeah. but also have lines that i can use it's almost kind of like you know like when you're uh in the ocean they have like the markers of like okay you've drifted too far this is a marker i need to have i think everyone should have those markers but I, you do they're called tim and or they're called robin jordan <laughs> but i also have to be willing to move some of my other markers that are non-essentials. Like I, I think that anyone who reads the Bible, including Rob Bell would say that the person of Jesus is what the Bible points to. Like it points to Jesus and what he did. That's like pretty standard for anyone. And even in the most liberal theologies, Jesus is still a central point to that, you know? Um, but I think there are other things too that I have to figure out as I'm going down this, this road of, you know, people like Dr. Walton, who I think are, you know, pretty mainline Christians, I say identify, but when it comes to scripture, really have a great grasp on what the scripture is trying to say and what it's not saying. And I think I'm still in the, I'm still for me in this tension of like, okay, what's it saying? What's it not, what is it not saying? What if I 
what have I thought it said for a lot of my life that it's not saying and how do I let that go but also grab now onto the new truths that I think it is saying yeah so it's it's a process frankly and I think there's grace in all of that I think that you know I don't think it's a salvational thing I I think though that I think that uh, we're in a great time in, in life where we have access to resources like crazy. I mean, the podcast world, the YouTube world, the book world. So there should be no reason why we can't find well-meaning scholarly people who have amazing gifts to see this stuff and be able to trust some of their teachings, even if it pushes me beyond my, my, my comfort yeah. zone. For me, one of the things that kind of, I guess, is maybe one of those lines that we're talking about is when you talk about something like salvation, which is obviously something that's really important to every human being on a really practical level, <laughs> because it affects, you know, everything. <laughs> like, at what point is it, like, if you ask the question, like, how, like, many people did in the Bible, what must I do to be saved? Like, how do you answer that? You can't be, you can't say something as vague as well. You know, you gotta, you gotta follow this Jesus guy and do the things that he did. Cause I feel like that's too vague. Like Jesus taught more specific things than that. And yes, to a lot of his followers, he, he did say the simple, you know, to follow me, you know, drop what you're doing and follow me. But I think that meant something deeper to them than what it might mean to a modern person reading that and saying, well, yeah, I'm gonna, I like the ideas that this guy's teaching. I'm going to, you know, adhere to this system of morality that Jesus taught in the Bible, because I think salvation is, is, is more than that. And so for me, that's one of those things, like you have to draw a line in a more specific sense. And, you know, maybe it's not getting as specific as like, the Calvinism versus Arminianism argument, because, you know, I think you can believe one way or the other and still be saved. Um, but there is right. something more uh, concrete to that. Yeah, this will probably be a, a good podcast topic for um, a future episode, because I think it's a big topic. What I will say is that I do agree with Jordan that it is, um, like what you said, I do. What I don't think it is, is praying a prayer. I don't think it's that. Yeah. Um, um, and I think too, that it is, I think in our era of simplicity and like bumper sticker slogans and everything, mm -hmm. I'm just, just in Christianity, we've really boiled down what we think being saved is to like a few things. Like some of my quote Romans where Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you might be saved. But then when they, when you read Matthew seven, where Jesus himself says, only those who do the will of my father will enter the kingdom of heaven on a surface level, they seem like, like opposite viewpoints. So mm -hmm. what I'm saying is that, is that I don't think it is, um, I got to be careful here. I'm not a heretic, but I don't think it's as black and white as what we've always been taught or even necessarily as like, oh yeah, like just say you're sorry and like, poof, like that's it. Like you're going to heaven now. Like it doesn't matter how you live going forward. You're just saved by grace. Right. There's, I think that there's very clearly in scripture attention and depending on what verse you want to pull out of its context, you can make a case for all different kinds. 
of things. Um, and the reformers had that debate too. People, when Luther made the term justification by faith alone, which by the way is a reform term, um, a lot of people in the reform movement pushed against that. They did, they said, ah, that's too extreme. I don't know how we feel about that. So I, all I'm saying is that I agree with you, Jordan, but I don't know necessarily where that line is right now. All I know is that to be a follow or to be saved, so to speak, or to be a Christian, as best as I can tell, is this combination of tr fully trusting that you cannot be what you need to be to enter the new humanity and that Jesus is that person and that following him in his way is the way to do it. <laughs> like that, it's something like that, well, you know? Well, would you, so here's a lead in question. Is, is the ways to get back to God, be reconciled to God? Because that's, that's the, the issue, right? From Genesis that we were separated because of sin from God. And so the issue of humanity is being reconciled back to God. Would you say that there was a difference in how we are reconciled in the Old Testament versus the New Testament? No. Well, I mean, are you saying like, like, was there a physical difference? No, just it, is there a theological difference between Dude, Old Testament, New Testament. Let me just stop right there. I let me admit, I am way out of my depth in that in this stuff. Okay, I mean, just so our listeners know, don't take whatever I say or Rob says or Jordan says on like a expert level because I, at least for me, I'm I'm not there. However, I I've always been under the impression that the sacrificial system was just pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would be Jesus. Right. That's how I've always and, understood it to be. But nowadays, who the heck knows? You know what? <laughs> you know. So it definitely was, but in even in those times, an Israelite that would come and, um, you know, begrudgingly bring the sacrifice and go through the motions, that's that's our modern day Christian that just goes to church, shows up. It's the same thing. Who, was, who were the ones that were actually reconciled back to God? They were the ones that God said something and they believed it. So, and if you go through Hebrews, that's, that's, the, that's the thread that you pick up is, is faith. What is faith? Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Um, and so when when the Hebrew writer talks about Abraham believing God and it was counted unto him as righteousness, it's the same thing as someone in our day, someone that believes God. What does God say about humanity? What does God say about the Lord Jesus? If you believe those things, God counts that as righteousness. I don't know, if, man. Even the demons believe it's in James. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think that term can be right, but a little underused there, but they're not, they're not believing that they need a savior and that Jesus is the savior. They're, they're believing that they are going to conquer him and, and take him out at the end. They obviously they haven't read the book of revelations. Uh, maybe they have. Uh, I mean, anyway, different <laughs> discussion, but, but I think that kind of goes but, back to what I was saying, Rob, real quick, just that believing, you know, what the demons believe about Jesus has to do with, they know who he is. Um, and then taking it one step further is that w what is necessary for us to believe about Jesus is how he relates to us and how we have to relate back to him, basically. Right, right, exactly. And, and do we believe that Jesus says who he is? And do we believe what Jesus said or God said about us? 
And if we don't believe those things, how can you be a follower of Jesus? Um, it's really impossible. And back in the Old Testament days, obviously they didn't believe on Jesus because they didn't know, but they believed, hey, God said this is uh, that I need to do these sacrifices. And so I'm going to bring them before God and um, repent of my sin and acknowledge my place and make these sacrifices. And those were who even Paul writes about is the true Israelites. Yeah. Um, so now that, now that we're on and, a totally different topic than how we started out. <laughs> we should probably wrap this part up. We'll be here all night. Uh, yes, we'll have a so because I, I have too many questions for that, Rob, but we can't get into it now because uh, I thought about that, obviously. But um, anyway, different discussion. But um, soteriology episode coming to you soon. Yep, yep. Well, everyone, um, <laughs> I'm just gonna call it a night right there. Uh, thank you for <laughs> listening to this podcast. And I'm sorry it's been a few weeks. We just had some scheduling conflicts, and uh, it's been hard to get us together. But and Dr. Walton had, uh, I think we, we we postponed for him one week as well. But uh, we appreciate you listening to this. Please leave us a comment, leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Um, let us know also what what other guests you want to hear and what other topics you want us to cover. I think uh, Rob and Jordan, you guys made a huge list of things that we want to get to. Um, and I'm with you on that. There's so many things. Um, so we're working on it. But thank you again for listening. And we will see you guys next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology in Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com, as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.